Yeah, I, I still don't know what to say after that. That's two weeks in a row. I'm not really sure. I need to come up with a better, like, uh, first line. Um, man, I was thinking in the first service, I'll say it in this service, uh, as I listen to you guys worship and I listen to uh, uh, just what the Lord is doing in this room, man, it's cold outside, uh, but there's fire in God's house. Um, and, it, and as we gather together, there's nothing more powerful uh, than God's people gathered. And so, uh, man, I look forward to looking at God's word with you. You know, in a lot of ways, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty predictable person. Uh, I have a, the same routines at work, I get to work the same time, do the same things when I get here, um, go to the gym at the same time, get my hair cut at the same place at the same time by the same person in the same way kind of thing. Uh, you know, I watch the same things on TV all the time, have the same disappointments, like disappointed in Aggie sports just every year. Uh, I'm about to get booed, but I'm also going to be disappointed with the Cowboys later this afternoon. I mean, guys, come on, come on. It happens every time. <laughs> come on. You know, just get yourself ready. That's how I live my life. Uh, just, you know, pretty, pretty predictable. When I go to a, a restaurant, uh, we decide what restaurant we're going to, I know what I'm gonna get. As soon as we decide, uh, you know, if we're gonna go to Whataburger, I can tell you my order, and so we show up, and, and I can order immediately. Uh, my wife's not the same, she's the opposite. She likes variety, and so uh, we'll get there, and I'll spit out my order, and she's not ready. I've rushed her, because now she wants to examine the menu. My, my deal is, I'm like, well, you've known we were going to Whataburger for the last, you know, 20 minutes, and you don't know what you want. I knew what I want 30 minutes ago, uh, but she likes variety. She wants to decide. And so I'm, I'm the predictable uh, one. I'm the no fun one. Um, but see, here's the thing. When something's predictable, that means that you can look at what it's doing now, and then you'll have a really good idea what it'll look like later. Like a year from now, you'll have a pretty good idea of what that's gonna look like. And as we look at the scripture together, one of the things we're gonna discover is that temptation to sin is predictable. It's predictable. So uh, you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter three, and we're gonna look there and we're gonna discover the nature of temptation. The nature of temptation. Um, we're in a series, Greatest Hits. Uh, we're looking at different stories in the Bible that are some of the greatest hits. Uh, some of the most famous stories in the Bible, like if you pulled a children's storybook Bible off the shelf and you looked in the table of contents, these stories would probably be in it. But that's what we're looking at together, and we're looking at them in their context and learning how they apply to our lives. That's why we busted out Shout to the Lord this morning. That was great. Uh, it takes me back. Uh, so greatest hits. But in order for us to understand what's going to take place in Genesis chapter 3, we need to grab a little bit of a context of what else is going on in Genesis uh, so we can find our footing. Uh, so last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 1, and we discovered that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He formed and filled the universe with his powerful word. And at the end of his creation, he looked at everything that he had made and he evaluated it. And he said, behold, it's very good. In Genesis chapter two, God plants the man in a garden and there he gives him everything that he needs. He gives him a place. It's this beautiful, wonderful garden. He gives the man a job. His job is to work and to keep this garden. 
He gives the man a woman to be a helper fit for him. God gives him a relationship with himself that they could dwell together in this garden, God and man together. Well, the other thing that God gives to the man is he gives him a command. You may eat of of any tree in the garden except for the one, the one that's in the midst of the garden. Because if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. That's the command that is given to the man. Now, one of the most obvious themes in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two is the idea of God giving commands. You see, God commands creation into existence. He speaks creation into existence, not by suggesting, not by coaxing, not by pleading, he commands. And it is so, God said, let there be light, And it is so, and that's how every day of creation goes. He commands, and it is so. He commands the light, and the sky, and the waters, and the dry ground, and the sun, and the moon, and the stars, and the fish, and the birds, and the plants, and the animals, and every single one of those creatures obeyed the command of God. But then in Genesis chapter two, God commands the man, and he says, do not eat of this tree. Do not, or you will surely die. That command is no different than the other commands that he gave in Genesis chapter one at creation. The expectation is obedience. God is the creator and he demands obedience from his creation. He reserves the right to pronounce judgment on his creation if they disobey. And as we look at Genesis two and Genesis three, we could probably assume that for a little while, the man and the woman obeyed God. Genesis two ends with this idea. It says that the man and the woman were both naked and unashamed. Now, we understand to to be naked is, is a shameful thing to us, but to be naked and unashamed is kind of a curious thing to say. And here's what I think that means. I I think to be naked and unashamed means that you are innocent and intimate, that you are vulnerable and safe at the same time. But that's not how the story ends. Because then we have Genesis chapter three. In chapters one and two of Genesis Moses, the author of Genesis, tells us uh, who God is, who we are, where we came from, what's our responsibility towards God. But then in Genesis chapter three, we find out what's wrong with us. What happened? What happened to our world? Our, Our world is broken. I don't need to convince you and throw up some stats on the screen to convince you that our world is not functioning the way that it should I don't have to prove that to you. You understand that, and and you understand that there's something um, kind of broken in you as well. What happened? That's Genesis 3. That shows us what has taken place, that sin has messed everything up. But one of the other things that we can discover in Genesis chapter 3 is we can discover the nature of temptation. Those of us that are, are a people that want to follow after Jesus, we want to obey God's commands. And if we want to obey God's commands, it will help us to understand and begin to understand the way that temptation works. 
And so there are five things. We're gonna look at Genesis chapter three, verses one through seven, and there are five things that I've identified that I wanna point out to you about temptation. The first one is this. Temptation begins with a tempter. Temptation begins with a tempter. You can look with me in Genesis 3, verse one, just the first part of it. The text says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now I would assume in, in this room, and those of you that are watching online because you're cold, uh, I would assume that everybody knows about the snake in the garden. Everybody knows that this snake is Satan. You probably have questions. How did the snake get there? Why did God make a snake anyway? Who is this snake? Is it really Satan or is it just Satan using a snake? Uh, was he really talking? Like for real, was he really talking? Is this the Chronicles of Narnia? What's happening here? Um, I wanna point out to you, once again, we talked about it last week. I wanna point out to you that those aren't the questions that Genesis 3 is trying to answer. Genesis 3, Moses is answering the questions that matter, and for his purposes, those questions don't matter right now. And you can think about that, and we can have a discussion on it, but for our purposes, what we need to do is, what is he telling us about the serpent in the text? And here's one of the things he's telling us. The serpent appears suddenly. There is, at the beginning of Genesis 3, there is a shift and the way the story is being told. Now the serpent. That is surprising language to us. The serpent, where did the serpent come from? Who is this serpent? We're, we're surprised by this, and I think that's intentional because the woman is probably surprised by it as well. The snake comes out of nowhere, and the woman is in danger. She's Apparently not ready for this encounter. She was naked and unashamed. She is innocent. She is vulnerable. Maybe you could say it. She's not street smart. She doesn't have her wits about her. But the serpent was crafty. That's the other thing we can learn about the serpent. The serpent was crafty. In the Hebrew language, the word for naked and the word for crafty are spelled almost exactly the same. It's a wordplay that Moses is using to show us the, the difference between these two. The man and the woman, they were naked and, and unashamed, but the serpent was crafty. Now, to be crafty is not necessarily an evil thing in, in the scriptures. It's not necessarily evil. It's how you use this trait, whether it's good or evil. Sometimes the Bible uses this word in a positive way, like in Proverbs chapter one, verse four, that wisdom gives prudence to the simple. That word prudence is the same word for crafty, you see? So it could be a good thing or an evil thing. It, it means shrewd. It means prudent. It means street smart, savvy. To be crafty means that you know where dangers lurk. That's very different from someone who is innocent. And so Moses is showing us that the man and the woman, for all intents and purposes, are walking into a trap. They are innocent, walking up against, going up against someone who is crafty, someone who can see their vulnerability and use it against them and take advantage of it. From my perspective, it seems like they don't really stand much of a chance. Temptation begins with a tempter. Here's the second thing. 
that I notice about temptation. Temptation succeeds when we dismiss the word of God. Temptation begins when, or succeeds when we dismiss the word of God. Look with me in uh, verse one, the second part of verse one through verse three. He, that's the serpent, the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The very first thing that the serpent does is question the word of God. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree? Well, that's not what God said. The serpent's kind of twisting a little bit, making it more restrictive than God was. But the woman gives him a correct answer. She says, no, that's not what God said. God said we could eat of any tree except for the one. And if we do that, if we eat from the one, we will die. But, but we see that the tempter has set his first trap. He's questioning God's word. He's, he's playing fast and loose with God's word. This is an attack on God's authority. Did God really say this? Did God really mean what he said? One of the ways that temptation takes root in us is when we try to negotiate with the word of God. Has God really said? If you look in Genesis chapter two, that, that command is pretty clear. Do not eat of this tree, and if you do, you shall surely die. But somehow the tempter questions it. Maybe that's not really what he meant. Sometimes you and I, we see things in the Bible that we don't like. Maybe it's something that's unpopular to believe. Maybe it's a command that's difficult to keep. So what we do is we look for ways around it. And here's what I wanna tell you. If you look hard enough, you can find someone to tell you what you want to hear. You can Google it and you can find some scholar who says what you want to hear and you'll go with that scholar. I promise you, you can find somebody on TikTok. I promise you that. And it'll be somebody who's saying smart things about translations and you're not really sure and talking about, well, we've uncovered this about the culture and you didn't know that already and so now you do and so now you can see how what you thought was wrong and, and you, you're off balance, your head is spinning because they're smart and what they do is they take the plain meaning of God's word and they make it mean the exact opposite, where God said, do not, they say, well, no, it's okay. And your head is spinning, and then maybe you start to think that particular thing is not so wrong. And maybe you start to wonder, how could my desires be wrong? And then you start to think, Anybody who wants to stop me from doing or believing this thing is wrong, even if the one who's trying to stop me is God himself. See, the Bible is like guardrails that keep us safe on the road. Guardrails are good, not judgmental. Guardrails are good for us, but if we dismantle those guardrails, we are headed for destruction. 
Proverbs chapter three says, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. And that's the way of temptation. We, we question God's word, begin to question his word in such a way that we begin to dismiss his clear commands. But the end of that way of thinking is death. Temptation succeeds when we dismiss the word of God. Here's the third thing that I noticed about temptation from these scriptures. Uh, temptation succeeds when we doubt the goodness of God. Look in verses four and five with me. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The first question that the serpent asked is, did God really say it? The second question that he's kind of getting at is, well, if God really said it, then is God really good? In verse four, the serpent straight up calls God a liar. In, in chapter two, God said, you shall surely die. If you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. That is the strongest way to say it in Hebrew. Imagine like 15 exclamation points. You shall surely die. And what does the serpent say? Nope, you shall not surely die. And then, after he calls God a liar, then he questions God's goodness. God doesn't really have your best interests at heart. God is withholding something good from you. God's just jealous. He knows that if you eat of this tree, that you'll become like him, and he doesn't want that. So he's keeping things from you. In other words, what the serpent is getting at is he's wanting, a, wanting the woman to think that God's not really good. See, if you can get someone to doubt what God said, if you can't get someone to doubt what God said, then why don't you get them to doubt why he said it. And see, the temptation here is to believe that if God were really good, he would let you do what you want. That he would never give you a command. That if God were good, he would never set up any kind of rules for the way things work. Or that, that if God were really good, he would never tell me what to do. That sounds too much like religion, and Christianity is relationship, not religion, right? If God were really good, then he would affirm you. If, if God were really good, he would never judge you. But as John Piper has said, the power of temptation begins with the prospect that sin will make me happier. It's the enemy who tells you that God's way isn't the best way. It's the enemy who says that God's withholding from you. It's the enemy who says that God isn't good. But we know from the scriptures, at the end of everything that God had made, he looked at everything that he had made and he said, behold, it is very good. God is a good father, he is good to us. God's ways are right and pure. His way is good. God's way is always the best way. It's his way that leads to life and joy and peace 
and not destruction and not anxiety. His way leads to life. But see here in the text, Eve is now off balance. The serpent has disputed with her about the word of God. Now he's, he's speaking with her and trying to cause her to doubt God's goodness. His authority is in doubt. His integrity is in doubt. And Eve is vulnerable to her own innocence. She has removed God's guardrails from his word, from his clear commands, and now she's in trouble. She's vulnerable. Well, let's see what happens next in verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate Oh, man. Don't, don't take of the fruit and that's what happened. Jim, I'm gonna pick that up for you, man. I gotta, I gotta make sure this thing's okay. Yeah, we're good, we're good, we're good, we're good. Well, if it falls now, it's gonna be my fault. I'm gonna set it right here. Uh. I don't want it to be my fault. That, that thing's too expensive. Uh, let me start over. Verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Just making sure it's not gonna fall again. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Here's the fourth thing that I noticed about Temptation. Temptation succeeds when we become slaves to our desires. The text says that the woman saw that it was good, that it was a delight to the eyes, that, that it was to be desired to make one wise. And so what she did is she took it and she ate it. What has happened is the enemy has awakened a desire in Eve so that she takes what she wants. The Apostle James says in the New Testament that God never tempts us. But, he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Here's what, here's what James means. When we sin, we act according to the desire that is already in our heart. This means that Eve went astray in her heart before she ever went astray in her action. So with his questions, the serpent has like stoked this desire within. Eve knew she was forbidden to eat this fruit. She, she said it out loud. She knew it, but something happened and she decided, you know what, that looks good and I want that, so I'm gonna take it. Desire has awakened in her. And you know, the same is true for us. When, when we walk in wickedness, it's never God's fault. He, he never tempted us to do that. When we sin, it's because we have given way to the evil desires in our own hearts. When God's word falls by the wayside, we're, we're left helpless. So we end up deciding for ourselves what is good and evil. You know, that's the meaning beneath the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? 
You know, we, we look at all of the disaster in the world and you, you hear pastors say, you know, everything that's wrong with the world, it, it all started in Genesis chapter three and you're like, they ate a fruit. Why is that such a big deal? Well, it's, it's not necessarily about the fruit. It's not about the tree, it's what's beneath the tree. What's beneath the tree is who's really in charge here? Who has the authority? Who has autonomy? And who's subservient? Who, who's the creator? Who's the creation? Who gets to decide good and evil? So by eating the fruit, Adam and Eve decided maybe God's not telling the truth. Maybe God's not good. Maybe I should decide for myself what is good and evil. Maybe, maybe I should be able to take what I want to be happy. Temptation tricks us into thinking that the reward outweighs the consequence. And in this text, if we were to read all of Genesis 3, it would look a little bit like Satan was telling the truth. God said, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. They eat of the tree and they don't die. They're gonna live for, I don't know, hundreds of years more or something. They're gonna live a long time. They don't surely die. He's, he says, if you eat of it, you'll be made wise. Your eyes are going to be opened. It seemed like the serpent was right, but as it turns out, you read the story of the Bible and you understand the way things work, the consequences were far greater than anything they could have ever imagined. It's like fishing, you know? You, you put the hook on the line and then you look, you put something on that hook that looks good for a fish to eat. The fish wants it. The fish takes a bite. And then what? Adam and Eve took what they wanted, but were they happy? Let's look in verse seven. It says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then in verse eight, it's gonna tell us that they hid, they actually hid themselves from God. They were afraid. They were ashamed. Their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. They, they had eaten of the tree and now they knew good and evil. Uh, in the Hebrew language, the word know usually means to know by experience. So it's not that they, oh, now I understand that this is good and this is evil. That's not what that means. It means now they knew by experience what it meant to do good, but now they knew for the first time by experience what it meant to do evil. The serpent promised, oh, this is gonna make you wise. Well, it gave them knowledge, but as it turned out, they were fools. And so now they are ashamed. They knew that they were naked. They used to be naked and unashamed. Now they are naked and ashamed. They had once been completely vulnerable and safe. Now they're covering up and they're hiding. They used to be secure, but now they're insecure. It says there at the end of verse seven that they sewed fig leaves together in order to cover themselves up. They sewed them. They didn't tie them. 
They took the time to sow. Like, maybe this is the new normal now. Maybe now I'm gonna have to live my life in shame. Maybe now I'm gonna have to cover up forever. I'm gonna have to hide forever. I am no longer safe. Shame, that, that's how it goes for us too. When desire gives way to action, the action never really produces what it promises and just on the other side of all of that is shame. When temptation succeeds, shame remains. See, temptation is predictable. It, uh, it attempts to dismantle the guardrails of God's word and succeeds when we dismiss God's word. Temptation attempts to make God your enemy and succeeds when you, believe, when, when you start to believe that maybe he's not so good after all. Temptation uh, fans the flame of desire that's already in your heart and succeeds when you become a slave to those desires. And just on the other side of that is shame. It's all so predictable. And we, we read this story in Genesis 3. We look at Adam and Eve and we look at this story and we're like, how could you? You guys are so foolish. How could you do this? But you and I both know if we're being honest with one another that we would have done the same. And not only that, you and I do the same all the time, right now. We bump up against something in God's word that we don't like, so we find a way to explain it away. We, we go online and we look for somebody to support our view, to explain it away. Has God really said? Or we let our desires take over, what we want take over, and then we start to act according to what we, we see and, and what we feel and what we think. We see that it is good and we take it. And then we live in shame. We live in shame. All, all of our innocence and vulnerab uh, vulnerability is forever covered up with fig leaves. We can't let anyone see our brokenness. We have to hide. Why? We don't know. From whom? God already knows. Who are we hiding from? We're not too sure. But we do, knew, we do know that we need to hide. We have to hide our foolishness. We have to hide our shame. We have to hide our brokenness. Nobody can see it. We are no different than Adam and Eve. So if you're someone who would say, I, I really do want to obey the commands of God and I know these things about temptation, so what am I gonna do about it? What, what are we gonna do? Here, here's what we can kind of summarize. Temptation is effective when we don't know or believe God's word. Maybe, maybe we are having a hard time believing what God said. Maybe we just don't know what God said. So if we're gonna fight temptation, one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to know and believe God's word. Well, how are you gonna know God's word unless you read it 
And so I, I'm gonna challenge you uh, this year, or we're, we're halfway through the month or whatever, but I'm gonna challenge you this year, commit to read God's word. And I want you to commit to do a couple of things. One, I, I want you uh, to commit to read for depth. That means study it, that means slow down. Maybe uh, to help you, you should join a Bible study. We've got a men's Bible study uh, that starts January 24th, 7 p.m. right over here. I'm teaching it. We're still in Genesis. Uh, we'll be there. Uh, so men's Bible study. We've got ladies Bible study that just started last week. Not too late to sign up. You can be a part. Sign up and, and be a part of that. Um, really easy to sign up and do that. But um, we've got to read for depth. That means study it. But I also want to challenge you to read for breadth. That, that means Read a lot of it. Sometimes we get really stuck in the parts we like and just read the same things over and over and we miss large swaths of what God is telling us in the scripture. So read quickly uh, and become familiar with what's in the scriptures. Do both of those things this year. If we wanna fight temptation, we need to know God's word and we need to believe it. How can you make yourself believe God's word? Did you know that belief is a gift? You ask the Holy Spirit, Help my unbelief and cling to God's word. If we wanna fight temptation, we gotta know and believe God's word. And if we know and believe God's word, there's a few things that we're gonna know and believe. If we're, if we're gonna know and believe God's word, here's what we're gonna know, one of the things. We're gonna know and believe that every word proves true. That's what the scripture says about itself. Every word proves true. So when God calls something good, that thing is good. And when God calls something evil, that thing is evil. And when God says that thing will hurt you, then that thing will hurt you. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. If you know and believe God's word, then you know and believe that every word proves true. You also know and believe that God will give you all that you need. Matthew chapter six, Jesus says, don't be anxious. Your father in heaven knows what you need and he will supply every single one of your needs. You don't need to even worry about tomorrow. He's got it. Don't worry. God gives you everything that you need. And then in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says, if you stumble across a situation and you find something that you need and you don't have it, do you know what you ought to do? You ought to ask your father and he'll give it. He's a good father and he will give you everything that you need. And if he doesn't give it, it's because you don't need it. You know, the flip side of asking for what you need is taking what you think you need. And sometimes we take something that's forbidden because we think we need that and God won't give it, so I'm gonna take it for myself. No, we've got to be a people who know and believe God's word. If you know and believe God's word, you know and believe that every word proves true, that God gives you all that you need, and here's a third thing that you'll know and believe. If you know and believe God's word, then you'll know and believe that shame isn't how the story ends. 
See, here, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna fast forward real quick through Genesis 3 because we don't have any more time for that. Here's what's gonna happen. The Lord God is going to find them in their sin and their shame. They're hiding, but he finds them. And he's a just judge, a righteous judge. And God will not let sin be swept under the rug. And so he does judge the serpent, the woman, and the man. But right in the middle of this judgment in Genesis 3, we find salvation. In the middle of the pronouncement of judgment, there is a promise of salvation. Right there in the middle of the judgment, God promises there's gonna be a serpent crusher. There's gonna be this one who comes to defeat the serpent and make all things new. That's the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, like Adam and Eve Jesus was tempted. It wasn't in a garden. It was in the wilderness. But Satan comes with the the same old predictable pattern. He questions the word of God. He tempts Jesus by twisting God's words around. He appeals to Jesus' senses and his desires. But Jesus, he clings to the truth of God's word. He will not abide the snake in the wilderness. See, Jesus intends to obey his father no matter what. As a matter of fact, he obeys his father to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the night before Jesus was arrested, the night before he died, he had a meal with his disciples. It it was the Passover meal. He'd had it a few times before. But this one was different, and and Jesus kind of made it so. And at some point during the meal, he he picked up some bread and he held it in front of them and he said, this bread right here is like my body, broken for you. You see, he was referring to what was about to take place. Jesus was about to be arrested and beaten and tried and beaten again. And then they were going to crucify him. They were gonna put nails through his hands and his feet. They were gonna put a crown of thorns on his head. They were gonna pierce his side with a spear. And he was going to be slaughtered, slaughtered on that wood. Why? Jesus said it. This is my body broken for you. You see, if you take that fruit, you shall surely die. If you sin against the living God, you shall surely die. And Jesus says, why don't we make a trade? And why don't you let me die in your place? This is my body broken for you. That, that's what was on Jesus' mind the night, as, that night as he ate with his disciples. I hate to inform you of this, but the serpent is still around today. He shows up all throughout the Bible and it's described to us that this serpent is the enemy of those who are created in the image of God, humanity. And he's still using the same old predictable pattern. His aim is to drive a wedge between you and God. He wants to shake your commitment to the word of God. He wants you to question that God's way really is the best way. He wants you to be a slave to your desires. And he he says this to you. See, take, eat and then you fail and you go get your fig leaves and your needle and your thread and you try to hide and you walk in shame 
The serpent is still around today, but so is Jesus, and Jesus is different. The serpent wants to drive a wedge, but Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. The serpent wants to question God's word, but Jesus clings to God's word. And then we're told Jesus is God's final word to us. The serpent wants to doubt God's goodness, but Jesus is the physical representation of the goodness of our Father. Satan wants to stoke evil desire in our hearts, the desire that's already there. He wants to kick it up and fan it into flame. Jesus wants to give us a new heart that wants to obey God. Satan offers the fruit of autonomy, and he says, see, take, eat. But Jesus, he offers himself. And he says, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. Adam and Eve felt shame, and they covered up. But if you're in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, you are in Christ, you don't need fig leaves anymore. Jesus offers to us his own righteousness that we can wear as a fine robe and walk into the throne room of God with confidence. You know, at the end of Genesis chapter three, after all the judgment, God graciously provides for Adam and Eve. He makes new clothes for them. Better, he gives them better clothes made of animal skins. You know, that, that assumes that an animal had to die. Listen to me. This, this is how we're wrapping up. Some of you need to hear this plain as day. God doesn't want you to walk in shame. He doesn't want you to have to hide. And so instead of fig leaves and covering up, do you know what he provides? Jesus' own righteousness he gives to you to wear. His own righteousness. He died so you could have his righteousness. So, so here's the fallout from that. If you are in Christ, when God sees you, he doesn't see some dirty, rotten sinner who just can't seem to get things right. If you are in Christ, when God looks at you, do you know what he sees? You're in Christ. He sees his son, his righteous son. That's why the apostle says in Romans chapter eight, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So maybe, 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 one way or another, this morning, you need to taste and see that the Lord is good.